Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. Welcome to Stephanie, a Bay Area lawyer focusing on how trauma affects communities and especially youth of color. Today, she's telling us all about her Granny Octavia's refined and elegant tea cakes. Granny Octavia migrated from Louisiana to Richmond, California in the middle of the 20th century. She settled down with her husband, contributed to the war effort, even while the war effort discriminated against other black folks, became part of a thriving cultural scene, raised kids, and hosted elegant teas and dinner parties. Stephanie spent all day, every day with her granny and gramps during her early years. And during those hours, she learned how to cook, how to set the most beautiful table, how to try new things, and that even grandparents are layered, nuanced people with sometimes surprising backgrounds. Tell me about your work, because first of all, thank you for taking the time to get on this call, because this is... um, this is a very, very intense time for you, professionally oh and personally. <laughs> yes. That's an understatement, right? Yeah. And I love what I do. Where I work, we have a lot of fun. It, it's We're like a, a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, and you know, our work can get a little intense anyways, but I think at this particular time, we're also an organization um, where the majority of us are folks of color. Many of our staff are Black. And so just feeling this in a completely kind of different way. And so even, not even just personally, but work-wise, it feels different. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, it's been been hard. Mm. It's been hard. I can only imagine. Yeah. So you've told me in an email, but so my listeners can hear, what is your work? Sure. So I'm a lawyer by training. Mm Mm-hmm. But um, my specific work that I do right now, I'm the director of education and justice um, mm-hmm. for a place called the Rise Center okay. and the nonprofit organization. And so my work specifically is kind of twofold. So I have a group of amazing staff that work with me in my department. And not only do we do direct service work, with programs that are run for young people ages 13 to 21, but also there's an advocacy piece due. And so my work focuses on how the criminal legal and the education system impacts young people, and more specifically, how it disproportionately negatively impacts young people of color um, with a focus on Black young people. Okay. So... Are you kind of talking about the school to prison pipeline that people talk yeah. about? Yes, that is that is a huge portion. Of okay. Okay. Do you mind explaining that for people who haven't heard of that term? So um, school to prison pipeline is really looking at all the ways that young people are policed in schools. And so that includes um, having police officers on campus and roaming the hallways and how that can lead to more contact with law enforcement and more contact and actually being detained, um, so incarcerated. We just need to think about how are we allocating the resources that we have for our young people 
And we have schools that don't have counselors mm-hmm. and aren't getting the adequate resources that they need. But mm-hmm. it also looks like how young people can be policed by other adult figures in mm-hmm. the school space, right? And you know, Kinat, you know, how are they being trained in adolescent development? Um, working with young people in different communities where they may not necessarily be from. How are you applying a trauma-informed response to different Mm -hmm. things that are Mm -hmm. happening within the community? And so that's a piece of it. And then also (laughs) Mm -hmm. looking at, I mean, the actual incarceration of young people. We know in the United States, we're supposed to have, and I'm quoting, (laughs) a, a rehabilitative look and how yeah. we're working with young people that yeah. are in contact with law enforcement. And that's not how we're working with young people um, in the criminal legal system. It's yeah. not. How are we looking at a more trauma-informed response within mm-hmm. that carceral system? How are we transforming that mm-hmm. system and moving away from a carceral system? So looking at restorative practices. Okay. So as you're... I guess you personally and your organization, it mm-hmm. sounds like you do advocacy, so you essentially intercede. So let's just say, for instance, maybe okay. there's an expulsion hearing where, hearing where a young person needs some type of support or their parents need a little bit more info on what exactly happens in these types of hearings, right? I see. And then also, uh, let's just say we do have a young person that is detained at the juvenile hall or something like that. <laughs> Um, how are we looking at their transition back into the community and really providing right. intensive supports for that? So we do, okay. um, my staff do case management for those young people, and it's acting as a okay. case manager and a mentor. And then with me more specifically, I'm working with a lot of electeds and other organizations looking at at the city level, the county level, the mm-hmm. state level, what are those policies and practices that need to be in place mm-hmm. uh, to support our young people better? We really look at our look at ourselves as a public health organization. A lot of folks will not look at the trauma that yeah. those systems yeah. impact on people. And so a lot of the work that we do is saying, hey, systems, you all actually need to change. But when you're mm-hmm. looking at how are we supporting young people that have gotten caught up in the legal system. Um, A lot of it is about relationship, finding out more about where this young person has come from, Mm -hmm. um, their background, Mm -hmm. to figure out what are those specific needs that they have. It really Mm. has to be, um, you have to be attuned to those specific needs that individuals have. And that's where the being informed in trauma would exactly. come in. Yeah. Exactly. And I, you have to be coordinated. So we have all these, all of these different systems, whether it's the government, whether it's the nonprofits, and a lot of us are working in silos. Mm. And so when you're working in these silos, but all of us are touching <laughs> young people in different ways, but not really communicating in an mm. intentional way, it's just not serving that young person or their families very well. And so I think that's like the first step um, to really creating sustainable and transformative system that's going to work and restore relationships. 
That's so interesting. And I think what I'm encouraged by is that people are, and it's not everybody, but Mm -hmm. some people are beginning to see that how we've traditionally done things is not working. Mm. So we need to Mm. start looking at things in a different way. Mm. So that piece is encouraging. There's, there's a lot of introspection going on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I know I feel like I want to cry, but (laughs) Mm. (laughs) I'm sorry. So let's, let's go back to again, kind of forming who you are and, and mm-hmm. obviously they were very much informed by your granny Octavia, I take it mm-hmm. before we kind of talk about who she really is, you know, of course her internal qualities. I just want us all to have a picture of granny Octavia in our mind <laughs> <laughs> while we talk about her. I'd love my listeners to have this picture because the way you described her, I, I kind of fell in love with her to be honest with you. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So just go ahead and tell us, you know, from toe to top, just what you remember visually even about your granny Octavia. Wow. Man. I mean, the first thing I think um, she had, really long black hair Mm. and always wore a middle part, always wore a middle part. And she was just, she was just beautiful, high cheekbones, highly melanated, just Mm. a beautiful dark skinned woman. She Mm. was just gorgeous to me. She was always, she always had a little smile on her face, almost like a little smirk. And uh, like, she could be the sweetest person ever, Mm. but at same time like cut you with her words Mm. (laughs) and like put you in her place and like you didn't even realize what happened until (laughs) (laughs) until it was in the rearview mirror (laughs) yeah and it's like whoa yeah she knew how to make people feel welcomed and warm yeah she was just wonderful I feel like she dressed up to go everywhere. Even when she was at home, even though it was kind of like loungewear, she was dressed up. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because you said her muumuu, and I thought, well, it was probably kind of silken and bright. Yeah, and it just kind of flowed when she mm-hmm. walked. It just kind of flowed. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that's what I remember. I mean, she always had to be like on point <laughs> when she was going out, always had on perfume, always had on a little bit of lipstick, and that's even at home. (laughs) And um, she loved hats. I mean, she was like the hat lady, and she had every kind of hat you could think of, whether it was like this big extravagant hat. Yeah, she loved to dress up. And I just can't help but think that And she also, she was a seamstress, so she would make a lot of her clothes as well and come up with different designs and things for her clothes. And I just, like, wonder if she had been born in a different time period, what would she have done, Mm. you know? What do you imagine? What if she was alive? Mm. Yeah, I think, I honestly think, you know, she probably would have been on, like, Project Runway or something. Oh, Like, I think about, like, B. Smith or mm-hmm. Martha Stewart or something like that. She would have had a media empire. You know, I could see it happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Well, yeah, because she was so multi-talented. I didn't know that she was a seamstress, seamstress, but the mm-hmm. baking, the cooking, the clothing design. Yeah, she. I'm telling you, she threw so many like just fabulous parties, and that's really where I get liking to entertain and stuff mm-hmm. because her space, her place was like the spot. A mm-hmm. lot of folks when they were invited to one of her dinner parties, they felt really special. You talked about that she was, you know, this extremely hospitable woman. And since she was granny to everybody. So tell me about some of the roles in her life. Who was she a granny to? Who were these people that she would come across and how and why? Yeah, I mean, a granny to everybody. I think everyone in the neighborhood called her granny too, Mm. or Miss Octavia. She just, I mean, she welcomed everybody. She would feed people that needed to be fed. Mm-hmm. Um, she would find little odds and ends jobs for people if they mm-hmm. needed work. And so it was like she wanted to try to support people in any possible way that she could. Mm-hmm. Um, if people just wanted to, you know, they just needed an ear. She mm-hmm. was there to listen. Uh, she was always on the phone talking. <laughs> <laughs> now, sometimes it may have been just, you know, them spilling the tea on things. And other times you, she, she was giving some advice on something. Mm. But, you know, she was a friend to everyone. And she also used to take care of young people, kids. And so, but I was thinking about one of the questions um, you asked about what were some of those the historic events or, or yes. things that, you know, she would talk about. Yeah. And so one of the things that popped into my head is, so we lived in a, a city called Richmond in Richmond, okay. California. Yeah. Um, Richmond is a shipyard and okay. um, a huge place, especially during like world war two, where we had the Rosie, the Riveters and, yeah. and things like that. And so, while my granny wasn't a Rosie, she took care of a lot of their children. And so just hearing from her those stories about keeping mm-hmm. the kids and just kind of being the ear for those women mm-hmm. that were working and also hearing about even though there were some points in that time where blacks and whites were coming together, mm-hmm. also hearing how there was still tension because some of the black Rosies or some of the black men that were working at the shipyard didn't necessarily get the same jobs and things that those, uh, that other workers had, white workers had. And so hearing some of those stories, it makes me think even um, she would talk about how during that time period too, you know, Richmond was popping and, mm. <laughs> They would they would dress up to go to downtown Richmond. Lena Horn came down um, wow. to Richmond one time wow. because to visit uh, soldiers that were over there and mm-hmm. um, just kind of feeling that vibe and yeah, just kind of this magnificence of Richmond. And mm. I'm a Bay, I'm a Bay Area girl, like <laughs> like hardcore, and so I, I rep the Bay. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of times folks don't know about Richmond because you hear about like San Francisco and Oakland yeah. a lot, mm-hmm. but not too far away 
from um, (laughs) some of the bigger cities. Even kind of hearing about a lot of folks have migrated from the South to Richmond. And so hearing kind of how they brought their traditions from like Louisiana and and Arkansas or Mm -hmm. Mississippi and places like that and kind of brought it to Richmond. And it it was just like a lot of rich history and kind of hearing how she grew well, not because she was in her late 20s and 30s, but <laughs> how she just kind of had a chance to be in all of that was a lot of fun to hear. Yeah, it almost sounds like it's making me think of the stories and the books that I've read about the Harlem Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think it's very, very similar. And even now, I feel like we have a wealth of creative people and things happening mm-hmm. originally. I almost kind of feel like it's coming back in different ways. And a lot of people mm. my age and younger have started looking at, you know, how do we kind of bring that feeling back? Mm. You've got a lot on your plate. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> going a lot. I, I really try to do too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, that sounds like great. I, I, I feel like I'm hearing a lot of connections with Granny Octavia. Definitely the passion for kids. Mm-hmm. And the love for them and wanting to do the best and find ways to, like, even when you said she tried to find jobs for them, she tried to, you know, give them that boost up and yes. push them forward, you know, propel them forward. Um, and I feel like, you know, I hear that. And then, yeah, the very active, the very active set of interests and lives and the cooking and the food. Yeah. And uh, not until you just is. said that, I'm like, yeah, actually, I guess so, huh? <laughs> I've never like even thought about it in that way. This is kind of a totally different direction than I kind of saw myself going. Um, I thought I would go into corporate law. But something kind of called you into this. Yeah. My pathway to the work that I do, there's been a lot of different paths. I mean, I started off, I went to culinary school. Really? Uh, Yeah. Went to culinary school. So I worked in in restaurants and things throughout San Francisco. And then one of the restaurants that I worked in, and I I was actually doing front of the house work at this time because I wanted to learn more about um, just the business side of things as well. And so I was working at a place called Biscuits and Blues. Mm. And uh, the owner, who was a lawyer, just after talking to him more, he was like, you know, I really think you should think about... (laughs) going to law school and I was like really you know I didn't really even though I love cooking I wasn't really feeling the scene working in the kitchen and Mm -hmm. so I decided Mm -hmm. to go ahead and get my undergrad and go to law school and right before I did go to law school um because I I sing and play the piano as well oh my god can't put me in a box. <laughs> <laughs> I will not try, I promise. <laughs> yeah, can't put me in a box, I refuse. Mm. <laughs> and my dad, he, he was like, I actually think you should just pick up and like go to like New York or LA or something. Yeah. But I did say, you know what? I want to see what can happen. There was actually a call for auditions for the Lion King. <gasps> they were going to be, uh, this is when they were like first going to be in San Francisco. <laughs> and I was like, okay, 
I'm going to audition for The Lion King. And if I don't get it, then I'm going to go to law school. <gasps> and so wow. I auditioned. Audition went well. I didn't get a second call back. And I was like, well, I'm going to go to law school. But you knew what to do next. <laughs> Look at yeah. that. Now, was your granny alive for that? Did she get to kind of walk through that path with you? She was. She was. She saw me graduate from law school, which oh, I was very happy about. Been so mm-hmm. proud of you. Yeah, she um she passed away a couple of years after I graduated. Oh, so okay. I'm really glad she got to see me graduate. Oh, she must have been <laughs> so proud of you. Yeah. So I have a couple of follow-up questions about what you were telling me before. When she I, I was interested in what you said about well, one, the migration. And I'm curious, one, did your grandparents come from the South? Because I have to, I was shocked. Like I said, I still have you in Richmond, Virginia, not Richmond, <laughs> California, because when I'm reading about tea cakes and, and the hydrangeas and uh-huh. the hats, I'm I'm thinking the South. So I'm having a complete paradigm shift. So did your grandparents migrate? Yes, from Louisiana. They, they migrated from Louisiana. Okay. And do you know what what was kind of their journey? What led them to make that decision? Well, you know, I don't know the exact answer to Mm -hmm. that. And it's actually (laughs) so. um, But I mean, I think it's what a lot of folks, they were like, you know, can find opportunities um, in this new place in California. And I, I really think that's what led them to California. But that, I mean, they're Louisiana, they are Southern. And so even Mm -hmm. though I'm a California baby, Mm -hmm. I feel like I have a lot of (laughs) Southerness in me. And it's interesting too, because when you just kind of start listening to even the dialect of folks in Richmond and Richmond, California, sometimes our accents even sound a little bit different. From other folks in the Bay Area. That is so interesting. (laughs) Yeah, because I say y'all a lot. Mm -hmm. You hear a lot of people from Richmond that say y'all. And this isn't even just black or white. I even think like with the Latinx folks. um, I've never heard them say (laughs) y'all. Yeah. (laughs) That's not in my I live in a super diverse community, but I've never heard that. So when your grandparents lived there, was it a mainly black community? And is it now? No, it was not a mainly black community. Interesting. Um, The street that they bought their house on, they were one of the only black families at that time. Okay. And was that problematic for them? They never really talked about it too much, but (laughs) I can only imagine. But my granny, she did have a lot of white families that she was friends with as well. So, you know, it was there. Definitely racism there. Um, There's this museum. There's pictures of KKK marches that happened in Richmond. And I mean, it's like you were looking at a a 4th of July parade or something. And so... Oh, that that heavily attended. Yeah. Okay. So it was definitely alive and well. Okay. You would have mostly white families in the area. And then at some point, you know, and you've heard of like white flight and things Mm -hmm. like that. At some point that happened. Um, Okay. And then it was a majority of black families. And Richmond is, it's Hmm. also different parts of Richmond, like the Flatlands or the Iron Triangle area. Um, And then you have like, I think they call them the Richmond Heights now. But okay. <laughs> I'm like, huh, well, 
Okay. Because they kind of want to be set apart. I mean, Richmond is right by the bay. Mm. And I think one of the things that is very exciting, the Latinx community has really grown in Richmond as well. And so to see the different cultures and contributions. Okay, so switching gears on Granny Octavia just a little bit. She was a hostess. She was a friend to many. But tell me who she was to you personally as a grandmother. I mean, at Mm. one point we lived right next to her. Oh, yeah. I mean, not too long after my mom had me and went back to work, my granny was keeping me. And so I probably saw my granny more than my mom. Yes. And so even when we moved uh, away, her or my gramps, they were the ones that took me to school. Okay. They were the ones that picked me up. So, (laughs) so I was literally probably at their house every single day until junior high. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I say, and I I actually think I'm more like my granny, probably more than Mm -hmm. my mom. I have so much of her in me. Mm -hmm. She sounds like a wonderful person to pattern your life after that is for sure. I, I think so. I think so. And my gramps, he was my love. He passed away when I was eight. I still remember the morning. Yeah, I was eight years old and they had just dropped me off. And for some reason, my dad was there too. But I just remember a lot of whispering and they told me that, you know, Gramps wasn't going to be able to take me to school today because he wasn't feeling well. So my dad ended up taking me to school. And when um, I came outside looking for the car, because, you know, usually my Gramps was waiting for me. When I got out of school and I didn't see his car, but then I saw my dad waving. But um, I get into the car and I could tell something was up. But and my dad was kind of having a hard time trying to figure out what to say. I remember saying, are you trying to tell me my gramps is dead? You had to say it, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. And then Mm. he was like, yeah. What I found out later. Everybody was so afraid to tell me because oh. <laughs> they didn't know how I was going to react. Oh. Um, and I guess afterwards, though, they were like, do you know this little girl? She was just like, <laughs> tell me grass is dead. <laughs> you know, I did think about because you were saying, you know, how close were you? And just to kind of show you kind of where my little mindset was. And this is when I was about three. I do remember there was something that my mom had done and I just did not like it. <laughs> and you tattled, didn't you? <laughs> I just did not like it. And I had a Care Bear suitcase and I told her that I was going to my granny's. And so I went and started packing up my clothes and she said the next thing she knew, she just heard a door close and she popped her head outside and saw that I was heading down the stairs with my suitcase. Oh, and she goodness. was like, where are you going? I said, I'm going to my granny. <laughs> <laughs> we were in Kmart one time. I was with my mom mm-hmm. and I was also used to my granny feeding me at specific times. That was a very important thing. We had had a late breakfast that day, (laughs) but in my little mind, I couldn't, you know, calculate that because I'm thinking now it's lunchtime. And 
I guess this woman on the other aisle heard this little person complaining and she came around the corner and it was my granny. Did she take you off to get something to eat? Yes, she took me to get something to eat. So, I mean, that's kind of how things work. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, she doted on you and I can imagine what a comfort you were to her through her mourning process. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. think they have been together, shucks over 50 years. Wow. I think there's this point, you know, you see your parents or your grandparents in a certain light and mm-hmm. there's that, you yeah. know, granddaughter. Yes. Grandparent mm-hmm. relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at a certain point that can kind of shift sometimes. Yes. And I completely relate. It, it's almost like you become a friend. Yes. <laughs> and so, yes. Yes. You know, yes. I did see that kind of change mm-hmm. with us. And it was like, wow, you know, she's kind of unlocking this piece of her and sharing it yeah. with me, which mm-hmm. I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things um, I found out because she had actually received these these flowers one day. And I'm like, you know, who, who, who are these from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then come to find out that, you know, one of the deacons at the church was kind oh. of courting her. And I'm yeah. like, whoa, <laughs> this is interesting. <laughs> and it just kind of made me see, you know, she's she's a woman. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. She's not just my granny. She's a woman. Right. Um, right. And one of the right. particular things that I had thought about when I was thinking about her being multi-layered is and this was wow she probably was about 90 when we talked about this and I don't even know what made this conversation kind of come up but I learned that she was actually married before my gramps I was like what (laughs) that's amazing what is this and my mom didn't know about this either really Um, yeah and Um, She said that she had gotten married before my gramps. And I think she was probably like late teens or so Mm -hmm. when this happened. He wasn't a nice guy. There Mm -hmm. was some abuse that happened. And my granny was like, you know, I'm not going to take this. Mm -hmm. And she figured out a plan to Mm -hmm. get away. It involved one time when he came home and he decided that, you know, he was going to get abusive. She had gotten a gun and chased him out the house and he never messed with her again. And um, after that, she carried a little pistol with her. And so like hearing those stories, it's like, wow. I mean, she's a woman. She's dealing with relationship things just like all women do. She was young and making Mm. mistakes like young people do, Mm. Um, you know, and so that takes an incredible amount of strength. mm -hmm. That's a hard situation. Um, Yes, it is. It's not an easy situation. And everybody, you know, has their own stories of Mm. why they're in different situations that they're in. But I think like particularly for her at that point in her life, it was something that she was like, I, I, I have to do something. And so they ended up, of course, breaking up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure how long after 
um, she split from him that she met my gramps, mm-hmm. but um, they ended up getting married and moved to California. But oh, okay. one of the things that came up when they were trying to buy their house mm-hmm. is that they found out that her and this other man did not, they weren't actually divorced. <gasps> yes. Yeah. <laughs> How that happened, I don't know. But yes, so they weren't actually divorced, which meant her and my gramps were not actually married. (gasps) And so it was causing complications with them buying this house together. And I was like, my mind was just blown. They had to hire somebody to find this guy to actually serve divorce papers so they could be officially divorced. And her and my gramps had to get remarried because they were married. Yeah. What an incredible story. And you didn't know that until long after your grandfather was dead. Yep. Probably. Wow. Yeah. I was probably like in my 20s. Things like that are so interesting to me because I think the default is like, oh, she was ashamed of it. She was too ashamed to share of it. But I think there's another possibility sometimes when you talk to older people or just as life goes on and you just realize some things that are so, I mean, that's truly a worst nightmare scenario, Mm -hmm. but sometimes things that are so horrific when you're living through them just fade. Yeah. No, I completely agree with that. And I that's, think sometimes we just lock things away. It's kind of nice to know that whatever you're in, that it feels like you might never be able to get out of, it might just kind of turn into that story that you tell your granddaughter one day. Oh, yeah, well, once, you know. <laughs> yeah, because she did just kind of say it so nonchalantly. <laughs> right. And, and, and time really does heal things, I guess, or memories fade. Yeah, I, you know, I completely agree with that. That's amazing. So, um, so did you want, I want to start talking about you cooking with grannies. Did you, um, did you want to say anything else about that? Just things that kind of shaped you based on what shaped them? Sometimes in a lot of ways, some of our history and when I, when I'm saying our, I'm talking about black people, Mm -hmm. our history has gotten lost. Right. And even some Mm -hmm. of the things that you would think we would know, Sometimes we don't know. And I think because of sometimes that migration and the reasons why people left the South, you also have a lot of families that got disconnected as well. In some ways that's happened in my family, in some ways it's ha- it hasn't. But what I do think is that some of the things that she's told me that's shaped me and mm-hmm. um, kind of been instrumental in how I've kind of grown and become the woman that I am is really about not letting things stop me or not Mm -hmm. letting, um, not limiting myself. And that's been one of the, I think the main things that she always would tell me and um, show me. I think because of like where she grew up and how she grew up, and just trying to figure out how do you make things better. Those are just some of the things that were instilled in me. Okay. Even if it means buying a small pistol and putting it in your purse. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you 
wow. I'm telling you, she she was like no joke. She believed in, and that wasn't the only time she had to pull out her pistol on, <laughs> on people, but um Mm, okay, so let's talk about Granny and cooking. She fed you regularly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what did she feed you? <laughs> oh, she fed me all the things. Um, my Granny would do a lot of baking cakes for people, and this made me feel very special. She would always have a little cake for me, probably like because I would probably complain about not having it. No, I was going to say, you were so spoiled, <laughs> weren't you? <laughs> I was probably like, well, where's my cake? (laughs) Did it once and then she had to do it every time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. (laughs) Really cooking with her. I didn't necessarily, we weren't necessarily using recipes. She was telling me, you know, you throw a little bit of this in there. Mm -hmm. She had a few things that, you know, she had recipes for. Because she had a little a, a little recipe box that I actually have. But I also noticed when I was going through the box not too long ago, there are no titles to anything. There are a few recipes where I'm just going to try them and see what comes out. But I think that was one of the things that was really special, too, is kind of getting this oral teaching and this visual teaching and food was just, I mean, food was just a, a huge, like I said, she did so many dinner parties. I still remember. So she had this little crystal bell oh. that she would ring to let people know, you know, people would first get to the house there, you know, kind of like mingling. And she always had olives, always had um, these little nuts for Love people it. to nibble on, always yeah. had candy in the candy was like this little crystal thing and when it was time to eat she had this little crystal bell that she would ring (laughs) and Mm. it was to let everybody know you know it's time for dinner so please make your way Mm. to the table and so it became my job when I was at a dinner party to ring that bell and I thought that was so special that was one of my the highlights for me to ring that bell did you kind of, she would serve the adults and you would go sit and watch TV? How how did you play into this? And even during the day when she was preparing for it? Yeah, no, I would help her. I mean, of course, yeah. sometimes I would be doing my own little thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and watch TV. But a lot of times she would let me come in and help her prepare things oh, and yeah. teaching me how to set a table. You need to have this many different glasses. I mean, she was teaching me all of that. You always have a centerpiece. Yes. I'm always trying to figure out how can I do a different type of centerpiece of flowers. And so those are some of the things. So I always had, um, had some type of role with those parties Mm. and she let me sit at the table. So I was right there with adults, Mm. you know, and I think that that's important too, because it also helps you to learn how to, um, develop some of the the skills like how are you holding conversations yes and, and things like that so yes yes it was just an education on every level so I really had to laugh when you said that you're gonna just take a rest some of her recipes and just see what happens yeah that actually describes my experience with these 
tea cakes because <laughs> I had something in mind. And then I started reading the recipe and I was like, wait, roll it out. What? And then I went back and I looked at the recipe again and I, I, I was looking at the butter to flour. It's like a stick of butter to a cup and a half of flour. And I was like, these are a lot more like cookies mm-hmm. than cakes. And then you said, you know, they barely rise. And I thought, oh, this is going to be totally different than I thought. So describe a tea cake for, <laughs> for our listeners. Okay, I know. I think when people hear tea cake, they're thinking it's going to be a, a little cake. I think it's like this kind of unique marriage of mm-hmm. cake and cookie. And you're going to have some folks, they make them and they're kind of like soft in texture. Mm-hmm. Um, And then you also have some people that make theirs and they kind of have a little crispy or crunch Mm -hmm. to them. Tea cakes have such a a rich history, I think, in the African-American community because you don't need that much to make Mm -hmm. them, Mm -hmm. right? It only takes a few different ingredients. And from those few ingredients, you can have it just as plain as you want it. You can switch up the sugar level to have it sweeter. And because it's so simple, I think that's why I like it. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I feel like it also, you have it on its own or it's like the perfect base. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you were talking about, you were thinking about having to roll it out. I mean, you can um, do it kind of almost like a drop batter. I kind of like the way they almost kind of look like a very flat biscuit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know, you know, some folks... They have chocolate chip cookies. And, and don't get me wrong. I love a good chocolate chip cookie. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted to submit, I was thinking, wow, you know, Granny, I don't actually ever remember her making a cookie. Uh, outside of cakes and pies, I remember the tea cake. Yeah. Well, and you that- know, they're a little more high end. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a cookies, a, really, you know, like, I mean... A woman who wears a hat would make a tea cake. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but like you said, simple. You don't have to run out to the store and get a bag of chocolate chips. Even the plain one is there's something refined about it. I would say refined more than yes, simple. <laughs> it is. Mm. And sometimes I think, you know. Now, how would she dress them up and how do you prefer them personally? Yeah, you know, she. OK, so I'll start with that. <laughs> She would do them just the original version, the very simplistic version. Sometimes she would throw a little almond in there with Mm -hmm. a little nutmeg and cinnamon. She had been known to put a little bit of rum in it. Yeah, just, you know, kind of depending on what what she felt like. But I think the favorite is just regular old vanilla. Yeah. And I think for me, um, just because... You know, sometimes you you try to be a rebel, but (laughs) (laughs) for me, playing around with the different flavors, like adding cardamom. Uh I Um, saw that idea. I like that because they have so much warmth to them anyways, Mm -hmm. because they are so buttery. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it almost has this kind of floral elegance that I think Mm -hmm. kind of adds to it because I do. And this, this is when I think about my granny too. I think about flowers. Mm hmm. rose garden and she always kept flowers in the garden Um, well I also loved I really loved the orange zest idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I'm a sucker for any type of citrus anything. (laughs) (laughs) Me too, me too, me too. I think we're getting ready to wrap it up because I know you need to be done your lunch break. (laughs) (laughs) But is there anything else you'd like to share? I think even just doing this has even helped me to see her in different ways. Looking at her, she really didn't have people put her in a box and really just kind of um, tried things, even if it was in a subtle way. Mm-hmm. And so seeing that how that kind of filtered into me, mm. even in ways that I, I hadn't even recognized before, mm. that's amazing. I, I'm just kind of blown away that... Um, you know, it's just kind of surfacing like mm-hmm. it is. And you just kind of, it just also shows just kind of this evolution of growth. And I think that's kind of the embodiment of her as well. Um, like you're continuously cultivating yourself. That's wonderful. I love it. Tell everyone about your food blog and where they can find you. Sure. So my blog is called Savor and Sage. (laughs) I love that name, by the way. You know, I wanted to share about food, Mm -hmm. but I always had this thought in my head about sharing the stories that I wasn't necessarily seeing. And so, of course, savor is about food, but it's also about how do you savor life? And then sage because I love cooking with sage, but also because sage means wisdom. And so I want to be able to create a space about food, but also where you're learning about different people. And so interviewed some chefs, I've interviewed home cooks, but I'm also interviewing elders. Lovely. Wonderful. All right. And tell everyone where they can find it. Yes. So you can find me (laughs) (laughs) at savorandsage.com and I'm also on Instagram at savorandsage. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I am so glad we met. I'm happy to hear about your work and I'm glad we got to learn from the sageness of your granny (laughs) Octavia. (laughs) Thank you so much. It was my absolute (laughs) pleasure. Thanks again to Stephanie for her time. All of Stephanie's contact information, as well as the recipe for Granny Octavia's tea cakes, are on the blog. Next week, we welcome Helen and Billy, the two sisters that run the very, very popular Greek cooking blog, Mia Kupa. The story of Helen and Billy's parents' courage, and especially their love for one another, brought me to tears multiple times. Sometimes tears of laughter, sometimes tears of admiration. Please make sure you subscribe now so as not to miss this episode. Also, I am realizing more and more that the power for this podcast to grow and succeed is in your hands. I depend on every single share and review. So please consider taking a moment to do one or the other right now. Thank you and have a great, great week, my friends.